I mentioned to you that I love water skiing. Uh, my father taught me to water ski when I was five years old. Uh, back then, they didn't make skis small enough for me, so he took a, a pair of old wooden uh, adult skis and sawed them off. Uh, the bindings uh, were, of course, uh, way too big for my little feet, and so he bought these little Chinese rubber shoes and screwed them down <coughs> to the wooden ski and, and taught me uh, to water ski. And so almost all of our vacations involved water. Many of them involved the boat. And, and uh, as I said, we uh, skied until we couldn't stand up and then uh, fished uh, for dinner. So as I grew up and had the opportunity to buy a boat, like all the rest of my family members have had boats, I bought a boat and I started skiing again. I went decades without skiing until I got a boat again and started enjoying uh, the sport of water skiing. And so I would uh, ski and take my friends skiing. And then I would, as I go to speak at camps that have lakes or rivers, uh, I would teach the campers uh, to ski. Often when I'm out uh, skiing with friends uh, that try to progress them uh, past combo skiing or what might some people call doubles uh, to get them up on a solemn ski and then uh, critique them and help them grow. As I'm driving the boat, I have a mirror. I'm watching them. Uh, we still have an observer that will tell me if they fall. But they'll come back in the boat and they'll say, like, can you give me uh, any pointers? And I'll, I'll say, uh, well, for example, you're leaning too far back. You need to uh, push down more on your front foot. And they'll say like, well, how could you see that? You never turned around. <laughs> and, and I said, well, because I had a mirror. I looked in my mirror and the water is breaking halfway back your foot, your front foot. Your water has to break in front of your front binding when you're slowing down for a turn. And they said, you could see all that? And I would say, yes, I can see all that. I was watching you. And so the interesting part about this is that we think that the word of God cannot see us. But the scripture speaks of it as a mirror that looks at us and that we're not to be so stupid that we glance at the mirror quickly and then walk away and forget what we have seen. But we allow the word of God to be a mirror in our life constantly critiquing us. The Word of God also says that we can't be merely hearers of the Word of God, but we actually have to be doers of the Word of, the word of God. We can't just talk the talk. We actually have to walk the walk. And so while I'm teaching campers to ski or to wakeboard, I usually ask them in advance what level of experience that they've had, you know, because I will tell them more or less about uh, coaching them before I put them in the water based on their response to me. And this one particular girl that comes to camp every year at the camp that we're going to next week in, in Minnesota, first time I had her out, uh, she said, uh, I give her a choice between skiing or wakeboarding. She chooses wakeboarding. I said, you ever wakeboard before? Oh, yes, I wakeboard all the time. I'm really good at wakeboarding. So I put her out there at the end of the line. She doesn't know the commands. We actually have specific words that we use. So <clears throat> when you want the boat to start pulling you, whoa, go low and slow all sound the same 75 feet away. And so you're supposed to say, hit it. And as far as beginning the pull to straighten you out, it's called gear. 
And so you call out gear, you get commands to the boat, and the boat goes into gear and it starts to pull you. And then once you've straightened out and you've got the pull, then you call hit it. She didn't know any of the commands. In fact, most of my friends don't know the commands until I teach them. And they'll say stupid things like, more gear, more gear. And you know, it's like, no, no, that's not how it goes. You have to say, hit it. She didn't have her board positioned in any way properly to be able to get up, and she's yelling, hit it. And I'm going like, you're sideways. I'm not going to hit it. No, call gear. I'll pull you forward. You'll get straightened out. Then call, hit it. She couldn't for the life of her give up. We're supposed to, by camp rules, only give her three tries. I gave her like eight tries, and I said, hang on here. You told me you knew how to wakeboard. Oh, yes, I wakeboard all the time. I go like, there is no possible way you have ever wakeboarded in your life. (laughs) And it turned out, this is the first time I met her. She's come every year since. She is an habitual liar. She's got a psychological, spiritual problem, and we have problems with her every single year. (laughs) She lies. Now, how did I first discover that she has this problem? It's because she had no idea what to do behind the boat, though she pretended she did. And we could see through that immediately and that she needed serious coaching. And we finally are getting her up skiing and and wakeboarding again. But uh, it took a lot of work and a lot of coaching. And it took her to listen and to do what we say. In a similar way, we lie to ourselves about our relationship with God and our understanding of the word. And we keep deceiving ourselves about how well we know this stuff. One of the shocking things that we try to convince our college students is that they don't want to hire a person that just has a college degree. They want to hire a person that also has experience. So you need to get an internship which even if they don't pay you, you have to get experience in the field for employers to want to hire you. And many of them don't actually believe our words because they'll say, well, I am such a quality person that it's so evident that I believe people would want to hire me because my parents love me. My parents give me everything I ever have wanted and asked for in life. So surely every employer will love me on sight. And we say, not only will they not love you on sight, they won't even accept your college degree. They want to know that you know something about the field and you've begun to prove yourselves. And that's what we have in front of us here in the book of James. You've heard of fake news. You've heard of the real Donald Trump on social media, which means there are fake Donald Trumps out there claiming to be him as well. We need to know what real faith is. We need to know what real Christian relationship with God is. And not all this lying stuff. One of the lies we've told ourselves is that stress isn't good, that trials are bad for us. And we've already learned to consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, 
lacking in nothing. And I said, that's a lot like a swimmer who says, I am fast the moment I get in the pool. I don't have to practice. Lie, lie, lie. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he's been approved, he'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who loved him. Furthermore, we said that these stresses, these trials, can actually turn out to be an invitation toward sin. And it's a call out to our old nature and the lure within us to listen to a lie. Notice that Satan came to Eve, lied to her, but then she lied to herself as well when she ate of the forbidden fruit. Notice that when Cain was disappointed that God did not accept his lame sacrifice, that he blamed God for not liking his his sacrifice. And God said, hang on here. You're in trouble because just like a wild animal, sin is crouching at the door and it's about to pounce on you, but you've still got time if you do well. Now choose well. And he went out and murdered his brother out of jealousy that God accepted his brother's sacrifice and not his own. In that breakdown of the process of how temptation comes into our lives, we can slow it all down and analyze it. We can see the steps in which we not only hear a lie, but lie to ourselves. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God can't be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So then what do we do? We accept his invitation for resource. We need to know what the truth is. And the truth is coming from the word of truth, which is the scripture itself. And he's saying the answer is right here in the book. You know what's wrong with college students today? Is they won't even read the textbook. Thankfully, I've got kids of college age and I can say to them, can I trust the students to read the textbook? Bible is a... Christian University, will they, will they read the textbook? Dad, Dad, they're so busy. <laughs> Unless you hold them accountable, they will not read the textbook. I say, you mean I have to write a quiz on every single chapter that I require them? Yes, Dad. <clears throat> they're, they're not going to read it unless you hold them accountable for it. Well, Biola is so advanced. Emmaus doesn't like this. We use real paper and real pens. <clears throat> at, at Biola, everything is electronic. And so you put the quiz up online. And it's powerful enough that it can mix up the questions. You can have a whole pool of questions from which it will draw some of them. Otherwise, they have quiz parties in which they sit down and say, like, you slit your neck on question one, I'll slit my neck on question two. You tell me what the answer is on question one, I'll tell you what the answer is on question... And you say, like, these are Christians? Yes, Christians that don't want to read the textbook. That's what they are. <laughs> and so, having learned from the best when I was a college student at Biola, 
I give them hard quizzes that you couldn't possibly answer had you not read the chapter. And so the students, after they start getting like fives out of ten on their quizzes, by the way, the way the, the life works in these electronic kinds of things is it's due at 11.59. We tell them that 11.59 actually is a minute before midnight. So if you try to take the quiz at 12.01, even if you try to take the quiz at 12, it won't work because 12 is the next day. The last minute in the present day is 11.59. And you got 10 questions, so you better hurry. They are sitting on their dorm bed with a laptop on their lap, and they're thinking like, I'm just going to guess my way through. So I, as a prof writing a quiz, am going to write a quiz you can't guess your way through. I'm going to make it as hard as possible for you to guess. In fact, I'm going to give you false leads that will cause you to guess the wrong question, <laughs> the wrong answer. And so they, they, they come to me and they say, there's something wrong with the quiz. I only got five out of 10. And I'll say, there's nothing wrong with the quiz. You're trying to take a quiz over material you've never read. Read it. And it dawns on them that it's difficult to cheat. When we accept papers that they have written, we place it into a computer program in which all research papers are analyzed, and it ranks every sentence they write as green, yellow, or red as to whether they're plagiarizing. We tell this in advance, we're going to run it through a program that will tell us if you're plagiarizing. So the only red I should see in your paper are quotations from the scripture. Yes, you can quote the scripture, but if you don't write in your own words, you're in trouble. And yet they'll try to play with us, and they'll try to say, like, well, he can't possibly figure this out. We're not stupid. We've been to college. <coughs> we know how this works. So write by researching. But today's student doesn't think that research means going to the library and checking out the book. It means asking Google for the answer. And so I'll say, you may use no resources off the internet. You actually have to walk into the door of the library and check out a book. And I want to see the bibliography of that book. You should see them whine and complain and say that's impossible. I can't even make it to the library. Why would you ask me to study? This is so wrong. In my whole life, all of my papers have been reflection papers where I sit in my bed at midnight at 11.59 <laughs> and I reflect on the prompt that you gave me. And I was saying my prompt was called research. I wanted you to read something by a person who was worthy of writing. I don't want to just hear what flows through your mind. But folks, this is how we treat our study of the scripture. And this is why we are hearers of the word of God and not doers of the word of God is because all of our lives today are short-circuited by lazy habits. 
lazy, lazy habits in which we don't actually work at it. Verse 21 of chapter 1 says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all the remains of wickedness means take that stuff off, get that stuff out of your mind in humility. And I, I'm just shocked at the lack of humility of students today. I've been teaching college students my whole life, and I'm an old man by now. I'm 61 years of age. I've taught them my whole life the least amount of humility I've ever seen, the most self-confidence I've ever seen, the most certainty that they're the best person in the whole world that I have ever seen, and the ability to say, like, I know more than you do about these things. And you go like, whoa, whoa, whoa. In all humility, receive as a gift from God that is offered to us the word of God. He calls it the word of truth. He calls it the word of liberty, that which will actually set us free. Receive the word implanted. That means it's not just heard at a distance. It's not just read in a cursory manner. It means that the word is actually inside of me now and growing. It actually has taken root and it's bearing fruit and it's coming up from within me. I'm receiving the word implanted. That's God's answer to how a trial that could have produced endurance has now become a temptation which has caused us to fall. He says, my answer is go to my word. It is right here for you. And let the word of God be implanted deep within your soul. Next verse, verse 22. But prove, same concept as test, but a concept of as demonstrating that you actually have succeeded in this, such as give me a bibliography that didn't come off of Google. Prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers. Remember I said that I can talk to people formulating my answer back and they can challenge me saying like, I was watching your eyes, I was watching your facial expression. I don't think I'm affecting you at all. I don't even think you heard what I said. And I said, this is what you said. I can quote it back word for word. But what has happened here is I have not processed and felt what they were saying. All I was doing was being a parrot, quoting it back to you. We can't be the kind of people who say, I've heard that before somewhere in the scripture. I know it's there somewhere. We have to be the kind of people who know where it is, the kind of people who placed it in their hearts, the kind of people that are letting that grow and bear fruit within us so that it's affecting us. Remember I said they won't hire you without experience? This is saying faith has to be lived out experientially or it's no good. You can't just know something intellectually. You can't just know something for the test. You can't just memorize notes that someone else handed to you and think you're going to pass the test. I specifically write my exams so you couldn't do that. Instead, you have to be one who actually has practiced the word, who does 
the word. This is calling for active obedience. It's written in the present tense. In the Greek, their default is the simple past tense, the aorist tense. When they switch to the present tense is to emphasize continuous action. It's written in the present. In fact, much of this chapter is written in the present to tell us this means we're supposed to be doing this continually. We're supposed to continuously keep on being a doer of the word. So I can't say I did it once, I'm done. I have to say, am I doing it now? Am I living this out? My entire personality has to be characterized by living out what the word says. I can't merely deceive myself. The word here, delude, is a mathematical term for miscalculation. Two plus two equals six. That is a mathematical miscalculation. And folks, that's what we do to ourselves when we lie to ourselves and say, I can wakeboard. When we say like, I can pass a test. I can write a paper. I can help your company because I've been to school. No, it's all theoretical. Where's the practical experience? Where's the dirt on your hands? Where is the proof that you've actually been in the trenches and have done this? Daily, hourly, minute by minute, we are to keep on becoming doers of the word who aren't merely hearers who delude themselves. Why does he keep saying this? We're still in chapter one. Why does he keep saying we deceive ourselves? We lie to ourselves and keep saying God has to love me and be pleased with me because my parents love me and please me and give me everything I've ever asked for. All my friends like me. My friends think I'm the coolest person, so you should like me too. No, that's not how God evaluates us. We don't merely listen to the word. We do what it says. This is another key verse for us, a verse that we should memorize. It's a huge problem for us. We don't act on it. He says in verse 23, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he's looked at himself and gone away, he immediately has forgotten what kind of person he is. Camping is a little harder to find a mirror. And so if there's dirt on our face at camp, we just accept each other. We go like, you didn't have a mirror, did you? <laughs> the, the word for man here is more specific. It's not including both genders. It's including only the males because every female remembers what she has seen in the mirror <laughs> and does take care of what she sees. But we as males can have a booger sticking out of our nose and the moment we walk away, we have completely forgotten what he's seen. And he's using this as a metaphor. He says, the careless man momentarily says, yeah, that's something I'll have to work on. And the moment he walks away from the word, he forgets everything he has said. And so you need to start making lists if you have to. You need to start taking notes if you have to. You need to start saying to yourself, this is something I need to work on. And in order to work on it, I have to make myself a list to say, this is what I need to do next. Otherwise, I'm going to forget. I have to act 
promptly after I hear the word of God. So that the reflection that I see of myself in the word of God will be fresh in my mind as to what I do and need to do to improve. Verse 25, but the one who looks intently, it's a picture of actually stooping down to get a better look. Our middle son, when he was just a little tyke, still preschool, had out on a hike with us before, and he lingered behind us, and he was stooped down looking at something in the dirt. We'd turn around and go like, you know, he's supposed to be with us. What are you doing? And he says, I'm looking at an arachnid. He's not even five years old. I'm going like, okay, what's an arachnid? He says, an arachnid has two body parts and eight legs. An insect has three body parts and six legs. And I'm going like, okay, just come on, catch up with us. <laughs> we, we have to be those people who look intensely, carefully observing what we see in the word of God that he calls the perfect law, the law that liberates us, the law that gives us freedom. When we observe carefully what the word of God says, when we study the word of God, when we memorize the word of God, it is going to become a part of our life. What if we say, I'll just look again tomorrow. I don't need to study it to understand it. I don't need to apply it to my life. I don't need to memorize it. I don't need to ruminate on these kinds of ideas. I can just glance every once in a while. That's, that's not what he's speaking about here. It's not sinking in. It's not taking root. It's not becoming a part of us. John eight thirty one. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth. And the truth will make you free. Part of the reason why we're afraid to obey is we think we're enslaving ourselves. No, we're actually freeing ourselves from the slavery of the deception and the sin in which we are casting ourselves. We find escape and liberty and life in relationship with God when we look intently at his word and notice the next phrase and abide by it. We actually have to live it out. Otherwise, we'll become a forgetful hearer, not an effectual doer. <laughs> the, the word effectual means to work. So we actually do the work. We lived in Iowa uh, you have property in Iowa. Iowa's got fewer people than two cities in Southern California, the whole state. And so we had an acre plus lot in the last house we lived in in Iowa, which meant that in that heat and humidity and rain every three days, you have to like mow twice a week in the summer. And to mow an acre plus lot, you end up with a lot of grass clippings. And I have a lot of sons in my family. And I have a lot of rakes in my family. And I ask my sons to come out and rake with me. There is no greater torture in life than to be wanting to play video games 
or to read a book or to do anything other than manual labor of raking. But I'm saying, like, come on and have fellowship with me. I'll be out there raking. Let's rake together as a family. (coughs) And they're like, this must be what hell is like. (laughs) And I'm going like, learn to work with your hands. Learn to fill the sore muscles. That's why swimming is such a good thing. Swimming teaches endurance. Swimming teaches discipline. When my kids were young, I began to realize that spanking is not going to work in every situation. Let's just call out for push-ups. And I've got all these sons. And so I'd say, you just mouthed off to your brother. That's 10 push-ups. Give me 10. And so they would give me push-ups. And, you know, if it was a big infraction, it would be 25 push-ups. And they'd have to rip those off. They actually won the Cub Scout Olympics because they had learned push-ups as a kid. As they get to be teenagers, you stop disciplining for every little thing. But occasionally, they'd mouth off again, and I'd say, okay, give me a hundred. Because I'm thinking, like, by now you should know better. Give me a hundred push-ups. And they smile at each other and get down and rip off a hundred push-ups. And I go, like, what? (laughs) And and the reason is because in swimming, they do hundreds of push-ups every single day. And so anything that dad can possibly think of, to give them physically is nothing, just nothing anymore. And so all the wimpiness of refusing to rake when you are young, now they are Greek gods when you look at their bodies. They're so ripped. I mean, they have muscles that you've never seen before. They have have muscles on the backs of their muscles. And anytime I want to lift something heavy and I say like, This would be heavy. Come here. Would you help me? It's like, (laughs) I'd be happy to lift that for you, Dad. (laughs) It's like, it's nothing anymore. It's because they've been trained in righteousness by now, and they actually have the ability to do what I've asked them to do. And so he says, you have to become a person who does real work. That's what an effectual doer is, a person who does real work. This man will be blessed in all he does. But you won't be blessed. You won't be happy. You won't feel free. You won't experience the liberty of God unless you do what he says. When I was in first year Greek and they were telling us, uh, we want you to translate and we don't want you to use an interlinear. This is before computers would help you cheat. There are actually books that will lay out an English translation and the Greek words right underneath each one. There's going to like, no, 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 no. You're never going to learn Greek if you cheat. You have to go through the process of learning it the way we're teaching you. And there are people who say like, well, I'm not going to work hard. I'm not going to spend hours a day studying Greek. For my singular Greek class, it took more time than all my other classes put together. But it takes labor to actually grow. And the funny thing about every college student has ever lived is is basically saying, like, I'm going to make sure life is as easy as possible. I'm going to find every possible way to make my, my life easier. And college students are just regular people at that age. 
it's actually true of every single human being. Man will be as lazy as he's permitted to be. And God is saying, regarding these spiritual things, it will take work. So if you give me four minutes a day, you're not going to be able to do anything spiritually. You've got to give me more than four minutes a day. You actually have to live this out. You actually have to abide in this. You actually have to become an effectual doer. This man will be blessed in everything he does. And you'd say like, well, how do I know if I'm improving? Students will come out to the first exam and go like, help me take the second exam because I really blew it on the first exam. I say, well, the very first thing you do, you have to pay attention in class, you have to take notes. Second thing you have to do is you have to study the notes that you took. And it'd be helpful if you got together with a friend who took other notes who was paying attention to the things when your mind was wandering and that the phone that was supposed to be off in your pocket that you kept glancing at thinking I can't see you because I'm blind and that, <laughs> that you're sitting right there and I can't see that you're glancing at who's texting you at this moment. If you concentrated and learned, then I could believe that you might do better on your second exam. Notice he gives us a test. Just like mom says, I think you have a fever. I just filled your forehead. I'm going to put a thermometer in your mouth to see if you really do have a fever. He says, here's my thermometer. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, the same term used for bridling the strength of a horse, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. The word for deceive there is actually seduce. We keep telling ourselves in a seductive way, I'm spiritual. And he says, let me listen to your tongue because I'll be able to tell just by the way you talk. Now, this is one of many tests, but here's a good test. Let's listen to your speech. If you can't control what you say, then you're not real. You're a fake Donald Trump, not the real Donald Trump. You're fake news, not real news. You're fake faith, not real faith. You're immature, not mature. Your religion is worthless. So the students then say, like, well, just tell me what to do. You know, I can't be creative. I can't think on my own. Just tell me what to do. And so James goes, okay, I'll tell you what to do. It's as easy as this. Pure an undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. What would it look like to be a doer of the word? How about helping the least fortunate people? How about having compassionate love for the especially needy? How about choosing people who can't pay you back they can't reciprocate then that means everything you give them is going to be completely sacrificial this is not religious ritual this is right living so therefore he says i'll give you another example you play favorites how many of my students will say to me i have trouble making friends People don't want to be my friend. And I'm saying, like, why? There's so many clicks. What's a click? A click is these are the people that I'm willing to be friends with, and I won't extend myself beyond this click. And we as Christians don't 
think we are prejudiced. But if we were to be examined, we would find ourselves that we show way too much personal favoritism. Chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. It could be appearance, it could be race, it could be wealth, it could be rank, it could be social status. He says, if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, which means basically sit on the floor. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? What evil motive is there to treat a wealthy person well? It's for what we can get out of that wealthy person. And when we form circles of friendship, we form circles based on what our friends can give us as opposed to to whom we ought to minister. And this, again, is like looking down our throat and saying, is your faith real or are you faking this? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world? And by the way, these poor people make up the majority of the church. Didn't he choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Yes, God will bless the poor. He'll turn the tables on this. But you've dishonored the poor man. Is not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court and sue you? Oh yeah, they oppress you, they extort you, they slander you, and yet you suck up to them. Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? If, however, you're fulfilling the royal law, this time he calls it royal as if it's given to us by the king of kings. According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. We love ourselves easily. We prioritize ourselves easily. But he is saying, reach out to those people in your sphere of influence who need your ministry and have no other way to receive it unless you reach out to them. Verse 9, but if you show partiality, and he writes in the present tense, he also writes to say, since you show partiality continuously, that's an indictment, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. It's like we're counseling a serial killer and he comes back the next week and he says, I only killed three people this week. I know there was five last week, but I'm improving. I'm down to only killing three this week. And we say like, do you not understand? You're not supposed to kill anybody. He is saying it is so ridiculous that you grade yourself on the curve and say like, well, as long as I sin a little bit, He says, whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. He picks two of the worst sins. Now, if you don't commit adultery, but do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak, again in the present tense, meaning habitually. So habitually seek, so act as those who are to be judged 
by the law of liberty. And the goal is total obedience. What changed me in high school? It was my social studies teacher who said, I'm going to test you on all the rivers of the world. And I said, that surely must mean the most important rivers of the world. When I did poorly on that test, I said, I'll never do this again. I'll know everything. And I became the most outstanding social studies student and received the Bank of America Award because he said all the rivers of the world. What changed me in college? The prof who wanted to separate the A's from the B's by saying, I want you to know everything. And so I started learning everything. What did God just say to us here? What did he just say? He says, I'm not grading on the curve. I'm not saying, well, yeah, I committed adultery, but I haven't murdered anybody. He says, do you know how stupid that sounds? That because you've not murdered anybody, you can excuse yourself and commit adultery? We do that all the time with all kinds of sins. Habitually speak. Habitually act as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Total obedience is the key. For judgment will be merciless to the one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If we don't demonstrate mercy, it's because we don't appreciate the mercy that God has shown us. As a junior in high school, I volunteered to work at camp all summer long. So young that they make us counselors in training for the first part of it. Then after a while, they let us go and they give us the youngest campers. We were in teepee town. I was Blackhawk. We slept in teepees. And halfway through the summer, the chief comes to me and says, why are you here? And I said, I, I'm here to serve the campers. And now he goes, why are you here? He kept asking the same question. And I go, what are you driving at? He goes like, you seem to be much more interested in the girl counselors your age than you're interested in your campers. And I said, oh. And I took him to heart, and I realized I was becoming distracted. This is why we can't just glance at the word of God. But we have to become a person who, in which the word of God is implanted and growing. A person who doesn't just glance at the mirror and walk away and forget what's wrong with us. We're a person who holds ourselves to the highest standards. In which God says, I'm asking you to, in academic, college-level terms, know everything, not just something. Father, we come before you and pray and ask that you would change our hearts and change our minds and change the way in which we're thinking about your word and become effectual doers. Help us not to be hearers who delude ourselves, who seduce ourselves, who lie to ourselves, but hold us accountable for living out what you've taught us from your word. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.